Hello and welcome to The Things That Make Us, a podcast about people and the objects that have shaped them. My name is Zoe Laughlin and each week I invite a guest to pick five things that have inspired, delighted, provoked or influenced them. We then talk about these things on tape at a time and place of their choosing with as many of the items present as possible. Writer, broadcaster, man about town, TV and radio, Jay Rayner is currently best known for writing and talking about food. He hosts the BBC Radio 4 panel show, The Kitchen Cabinet, writes a regular column for The Guardian newspaper and pops up on MasterChef and The One Show. I joined Jay in his South London home to record this episode of The Things That Make Us. kitchen we are this is a very old kitchen which is incredibly badly designed it's seen us through but it's knackered um, and so we've got a very little small area for food production it's about two square meters it's tiny just absurd just absurd i mean you'd expect me to have something better than this wouldn't you oh, truth be had it i would yeah no it's Do rubbish it. it's absolutely rubbish but um three of my items are in here for various reasons so what's your first my first has a glorious name, or at least I thought it had a glorious name, and it's called a gasunda. And I was first shown a gasunda by a chef called Nick Nairn, who um, had a moment as a celebrity chef until he worked out that it wasn't good for him because he'd just get drunk every night. And then he retired to a, a cookery school in Scotland where he sells them. This is, I'm showing you the gasunda. So it is a flat piece of flexible... I suppose it's sort of aluminium, isn't it? Or stainless steel. Yeah, stainless steel. But thin enough to bend with a rubber handle on the flat pieces, utterly square. The gasunda sounds like a very glamorous name. It is, in fact, the words goes under. And what you do with this is you've chopped up your onion and you have to get your onion into your pot and you slip your gasunda under the pieces. Goes on top of there, goes straight in there. It is a very, very simple idea and it works brilliantly. And it's kind of in use in this kitchen all the time. Can I hold it? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's got a certain flexibility, but also it feels like a, a bit like a wallpaper scraper yeah. or something. You could jimmy it under something. Yeah, I mean, you could, there are many things you could do with it. We keep it for food. Um, but it's the flexibility of it. And also, it just feels like an extension of your hand. And I love the fact that it was, you know, I went and said, it's a gasunda. Oh, a gasunda. Which, which, which country does the gasunda come from? Thinking it might be some kind of Belgian device. No, that goes under. That's all it is, the Cassandra. So do you not, I mean, I would be chopping on a chopping board, pick the chopping board up and scrape stuff in. Well, I have a truly appallingly designed chopping board. This was bought oh for God. me by my parents. Um, now, in theory, I suppose they looked at me and that's a robust chopping board. It is a little bit like a butcher's block, a mini butcher's block. It's very, very heavy. It's three inches thick. You're not picking that up with one hand to scrape things off. And I mean, obviously, we could have got rid of it and got a new one. We've got one for vegetables and cooked food and another one for raw meat. And they're both as heavy as each other. So no, the Cassandra in these circumstances is much more useful. Plus, you know, you might have chopped one thing up here on one corner of the board and another thing on the other corner so that you can get in there. And I just love the simplicity of it. I love the fact that it works. Um, we've had it for a very long time, actually. What does it sound like? It's... 
It looks a little bit also like those things people would use with, for dough for chopping. Oh, I you think you, I think my wife's used it for that. I think my other half's used it for that because she bakes. I don't bake. So do you do the majority of the cooking? Uh, no. I mean, I do the show cookery, the alpha male cookery. Um, but um, when it comes to you know the kids' tea, we'll or family meals, as it now is the kids' tea. They're sixteen and twelve. We split it between us, pretty much. So, what's your second thing? It's very obvious. I don't think it's going to attain us for very, very long, but I just... One knife. If you look over here in the corner, there's a block with, I don't know, another ten knives. And there's a couple other over there as well, and there's one up there. And there. But this is the only one I use. I believe it's made by Porsche. Is that the one? No, it is. F.A. Porsche. I don't know if it's the same company or not, but I was given this. And it is a very, very lovely piece of design. Um, I look at it now, I don't, you know, I'm only examining it because you're asking me to in a way. It's got a very thick, solid handle in one. I mean, the whole knife feels like it's one piece. There's a bolt going through it. I'm not sure whether that's to keep anything together. I can't see why it would be. Um, or whether it's just to stop your fingers going for, through a certain point. The blade is, what would you say that is, 8 inches or 10 centimetres? It's not long. That's about 6 inches. Is that about 6 inches? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I knew you'd know. But it just sits perfectly. The handle is, as I say, a lump. I don't know what shape to call this. You're... I mean, it's one solid cast piece of steel, isn't it? Yeah, and feel then... it in your hand. It's... Oh, it's nice. Oh, it's nice. I don't, I, I don't think it's particularly expensive. I mean, all right, it's, you know, a good knife should cost 50 to 100 quid or something like that. And I suspect it is of that range. But it's not, it's not ridiculous. I particularly like the sort of facets. It's not a curved handle, it's faceted. So it gives you an edge yeah. to get a purchase on, doesn't it? It does. I even have a couple of others of these, but I don't use them. It's this one. It's perfectly, it's, almost, it's a universal knife. How would you describe your relationship to food? Um... It's sometimes misunderstood. I mean, yes, I like food, I like eating, I'm greedy, um, all of those sort of things. But I'm not like many of the people who read me or listen to me. I mean, there are obsessives out there, real obsessives. I'm interested in the writing. I'm interested in the way that it connects us to who we are. I'm interested in the language of food and the emotions of food. I'm really interested in all that. I'm interested in stories and narrative. I'm a writer more than a, an eater. I mean, obviously, I'm not, you know, skinny and I, <laughs> I like my food. But um, it's, and, and maybe at times it's been a comfort thing for me, but it's, it's not, God, the, the napkin sniffers, the ones who travel the world collecting Michelin stars, just don't get it. There's something of craft, I think, in what you're interested in then, in the sense of the crafting oh, of those uh, words. Uh, um, uh, what, in terms of language? Mm. Well, yes, although I would acknowledge that it could be about anything but I do find I have an emotional connection to food. Over the years, I've written about almost everything other than sport, and even with sport, I can understand how you would write about that. I used to review theatre at one point, I've reviewed film, and I've written an awful lot of you know, non-fiction, um, long-form journalism and all of that sort of stuff. It is about telling the stories, and food is great stories. It's terrific stories. Object number three. Right, this isn't a positive, it's a negative. This is my current cafetiere. This one is stainless steel, rather than one of those glass ones in a frame. Looks a little bit like a coffee pot. You've got your uh, plunger bit 
um, on a, another stainless steel thing and um, you know just goes down push it down. I drink a lot of coffee I, I, I put into evidence that is my morning coffee cup and I have two of those a day. So that's double the height of a standard mug. Yeah, yeah, I drink a lot of coffee. I mean, you know, if you're going to have vices, make them pretty benign ones. Think about this. Doesn't work. This cafetiere doesn't work. And I have never found a cafetiere that works. None of them. I mean, the other one, this, this one back here is the one we had before. And we eventually got so frustrated by this one leaking. Or, um, you know, if you press down too hard on them, you've got a sudden fountain of coffee. That one was terrible. This one is less bad, but it's still terrible. It still dribbles coffee when you try to pour it. And if you press down too hard, it will send up a shower of coffee. The glass ones break. I mean, if you've ever had a glass cafeteria, you break the glass at least three times a year. Or maybe we do. Um, the plastic ones are just horrible and also have the whole compression issue. Cafetiers. Uh, that's the coffee I like to drink. I don't want an espresso machine in my in my house. I don't want a latte machine. I don't want. I, I want. A, uh, I love the coffee that comes out of them. But why can't someone make a cafetiere that works? So it strikes me. I mean, in terms of the thing that makes you about this, actually, you enjoy the grit. You enjoy something to push against, and this not working is actually firing you up. Do you think it's part yeah. of it that they, that in fact, if I finally got a cafetiere that worked, I would be very bored by it and not know what to do with it? I think so. Perhaps. No. No, I mean, that's very, very Pollyanna-ish of you. But no, I just, it drives me nuts that years of design and clever people and literally I'm pushing against it every morning. But every morning I'm waiting to see whether this is going to explode in a fountain of coffee. And I, it, it bothers me that there's not a better one. It really does. This is the one that we'll do for now. And at some point we'll get frustrated. And maybe as a result of recording this, someone will say... Have I got the cafetiere for you? Quite possibly. I live in hope. Yeah, design challenge is set. So that's the kitchen object. That's the kitchen object. Walk this way and we're going into the living room. Um, and it's this coffee table. And the coffee table has been part of our family life for 25 years, I think. We've had it a very, very long time. It's made from railway sleepers. It's cracked. Slightly, so it's three railway sleepers. It's a good, solid piece of wood. There's one particular quality about this coffee table which makes it very, very important in my life. And I, the only way to show you is to sit down. And it's this. So, <laughs> my feet lie on this table perfectly. I have had my feet up on this coffee table for 15, 20 years. And this is the position in this house where I know I am doing nothing. I lead quite a busy life. I'm not, you know, I'm not complaining about it. I, I do it purposefully. It's my fault. Um, and my other half is a little less still than I am. <laughs> she, she likes to be doing things. But I am more than capable of sitting here and watching Netflix or watching whatever's on for hours on end. But the fact that this table, I, you know, sometimes think because of the split that's occurred in it between two of the, the sleepers, so to speak, maybe I should get it replaced. But I know that I would spend all the time looking for something that was offering and demanding me to put my feet on it. Yeah. It just demands to have your feet on it, which some people might find disgusting, but it's my house, my rules. It is a chunky piece of kit, isn't it? Really solid table. Oh yeah, it's very, very solid. I, you know, there's, there's no... 
dancing could happen on that, no problem. Oh, anything could happen on this table. This table's not going anywhere. I do find it quite aesthetically pleasing. But it's about the fact that it is at the perfect height for me to sit on the sofa with my feet on it. So you're quite a disciplined freelancer. Do you uh, keep a... I mean, in fact, the, the question has always slightly baffled me. Because it's not like I'm playing at work. I have a busy working life. I have an office up there and I get it done. I've always wondered about the waste of having to go into an office every day. I've done it occasionally and found it very, very unrewarding indeed. So what motivates you? Well, initially the mortgage. I mean, <laughs> you know, you've got, you've got to pay the bills. But also, a lot of my work is forward-facing. I'd say in the early days, and you talk to most journalists, the thrill of the byline. In the old days of print, the thrill of the byline was a big thing. We're talking on a Thursday and it's what, coming up to 10 o'clock and a piece of mine will go online on the Guardian website in about two hours. Uh, it's the OFM column, which we release a couple of days early. I'm still thrilled by the fact that a piece of mine will be going out there. So that's the Observer Food Monthly. Yeah. You know, you want a byline, you want a piece out. I, I came into journalism at an interesting point in the late 80s with a whole bunch of quite extraordinary people emerged at that point. I'm not calling myself one of them. But we were all sort of young guns in competition. And there, there is a, a, a great essay uh, in a book called The New Journalism, edited by Tom Wolfe. And the, the essay is by Tom Wolfe, in which he describes what it was like to be in New York in the 60s when there were a bunch of new journalists around, guys like Tom Wolfe and George Plimpton and James Breslin. And they, were, and they had a thing called The Game. And The Game was who could write a piece of non-fiction that read most like a novel. Um, and who could have the biggest feature. In it. And although it wasn't admitted by many of us, there were certainly two or three of us who talked about the game. And in those early years, in the 80s and 90s, the game was afoot. And we were all trying to get the biggest bylines um, at the most precocious. We were horrible. But we were, we were you know, I, I suppose in the end we all went on to do reasonable, you know, reasonably good things in journalism. So you were saying you were forward-facing. I mean, your food security interest actually is very forward-facing, you know, long-term, 50-year thinking. So I wrote a book called Greedy Man and the Hungry World, which was all about how we feed ourselves in the 21st century. Quite controversial stuff, and then I had to go out and debate it with the public, um, and it took me all the way to giving evidence to a, a House of Commons Select Committee, being written up in the Daily Mail, arguing with people. And so I, the book took 18 months, two years, and the arguing took two years. I had a live show that I took around the country. And at the end of those four years, I was ex exhausted of being, you know, this thing, this political thing. So I then retired that and had done two years of touring a show about lousy restaurants, which has been an awful lot of fun. You read politics at university. Yeah. So is there something in your core that is actually politically motivated or activist? Or I, I, am, I am politically engaged, but I'm not... You know, a curse on all their houses. I, I take political positions. And people have tried to co-opt me at various times. Various governments have tried to invite me onto various committees. And I've always refused. But no, but except that a politics degree is like any liberal arts degree. It's about the way you think rather than, you know, learning to analyse and think rather than actually be political. In, in the same way that an English literature, literature degree does not teach you to be a novelist. The final item. The final item. Walk this way. We cross the hall. Um... Now, I, I, the moment you asked me whether I would do this, 
I told you that I could always do the full half hour talking about one item, didn't I? And that one item is now sitting in front of us. It is a grand piano. It's a baby grand piano. Um, I think the simplest thing might be... Hang on, i move that. You can then sit there. Right, so this is, um, for those who are interested in the technical stuff, a Yamaha C3, uh, six foot one, grand piano, new when bought. My mother died in 2010, my father died two years ago, so the legacy came through, and I wanted to get something that would always, to me, you know, I could look at something. It's easy to lose a legacy and that sort of thing. And it came to me that the best solution was the last piano I would ever buy. Um, and it's this. The Yamaha range of uh, grand pianos starts with the C1, which is about five foot long and is essentially the same as the U3, but it's on the horizontal. Um, you have to move beyond the C1 to start getting the benefit of uh, an open case grand piano where the, you know, the whole body is longer and you've got the soundboard and the resonances of it. These are extraordinary pieces of... Well, I can barely bring myself to call them machinery um, because, you know, they live and they have a particular life to them. I love the piano as object. I think better of a room for having a piano in it. Not even, it's not my room, any room. I walk into a restaurant, there's a piano. I will think better of that restaurant for the potential that can happen there. The beginning of the 20th century, this was Xbox, flat screen TV, sound system. It was everything. It was the only entertainment there was. And everybody would, you know, gather around it to, to make music. Um, and so it also speaks of the potential of that room. And there, there are far fewer of them now, really are far fewer of them. But also they, you know, they demand to be touched as well. And the moment you sort of touch one, everybody starts with a white note. The sound builds through the whole instrument. Uh, there is a, a very distinct thing between a piano like this, which is located in the home, and is going to stay here, and a piano that is in a public place and is being played uh, by different people every single night and being tuned by different people. So this will be tuned once every three or four months and won't need much more than that because it's very stable and it's in a very stable place. You get very detailed instructions about where to place them. I mean, this is a lovely room lined with books, um, generous proportions, but actually, I, I mean, that door won't fit this piano through. How did you get it in? Ah, grand pianos are much easier to move than uh, upright pianos. You take the legs off. Grand pianos travel without their legs. Um, and so it's much, much easier to shift one of these. This is a very kind of modern one. I mean, it's down to the fact that it's even got one of those bits of uh, modern kitchen technology. It's got a soft, soft closed lid. It's got a soft closed lid, which may seem like nothing. But actually, if there are kids knocking around, it's always, it's always handy <laughs> to have that. And then if you... Um, I mean, shall I raise the lid on it? Yeah, please. Should we do that bit? The whole piano is covered with sheet music and books for pieces. Actually, it's a bit dusty, I suddenly noticed, with shame. So about four years ago, you formed a, a jazz group. Well, I'd played for about 30 years, and I'd done various other things. Oh, that's terrible. I'm shocked by the amount of dust that's on the hammers. Um, 
but now we gig quite a lot and it's a lot of fun I'm wondering if there's a way, if you stand, actually, I'm going to get you to stand around the other side so you can look in. I mean, I don't know whether you ever look inside pianos to watch what happens, but it's um, quite a sexy thing. Let the, the, the beast do its thing. Tremendous. <laughs> You've mentioned to me before the pianist is one musician who doesn't travel with their instruments. Very well, if you become extremely sort of successful, if you're Stevie Wonder, you do. Um, although personally, I, I you know, there's been a moment to think that, that that must be a nightmare in itself. But no, most of the time, vast majority of the time, you don't meet your instrument until an hour and a half, two hours before you play it. Longer if you're lucky, um, but usually in my case, it's an hour and a half. And so the first thing, you know, I sit down and I'm looking at this and thinking, so what have you got for me? What, and, and it will always be, I always do a, a, a tenth in D minor, which is a D down the bottom and an F at the top. So you're always, you need to know whether the top's going to be soft or not. Um, what's the tone like when you're doing the big fat chords? What's the bass down? Um, and it takes a while as well. Plus the other thing that can happen, and it's what I'm always waiting for, is the very played pianos, the ones in public spaces, the ones that are retuned for every performance, can have a tendency to slip very quickly. I've had pianos slip out of tune under my fingers while I'm performing, and that's not good. So if you were to come across another baby grand, the same as yours, it wouldn't be the same, though, would it? No, but one of the reasons why my so-called technical rider, i.e. the thing you send in to a venue when you're going to gig there, it always says Yamaha C1 or equivalent. I don't really mean the equivalent bit, but you have to to not sound difficult. I want, uh, if I had my druthers, it would always be a Yamaha Baby Grand. Only, not because they're the best. They're not quite the best damn reliable and damn trustworthy. Um, there are a lot of public spaces where you find Steinways and you're meant to be very, very excited about that. But they can be very, very different. They can, they can go from being actually not all that, just lacking a bit of tone and a bit sort of crotchety and unreliable, to the one I played uh, just on Saturday night um, at the St. James Theatre Studio, which is the greatest piano I've ever played. And that was just a glorious, glorious thing. Absolute beautiful, beautiful thing. Best piano. I mean, normally, for me, you know, this piano is a place of safety as far as I'm concerned because um, I know what it's going to do.
this this uh, the piano is my friend it's my adversary it's you know the mistress i can never satisfy um the more you know the less you know all of those clichés and they are clichés about music are exactly right i've come to it late um very late for what i want to be and there are enormous yawning gaps i'm quite good at arrangement i'm quite good at arranging stuff within my own wheel wheelhouse within my own skill set which which then works so is this the area of your life that you're most ambitious in uh that's an interesting question i i it's it's the newest thing in a way because it's only been the past four or five years that it's moved on to that sort of professional scale and there is a craving for acceptance by the professionals which also seems ludicrous to me i i'm i'm ambitious in the sense that i know how much further there is to go being really i mean this is a you know quite a confession when it comes to writing restaurant reviews there are pieces of mine that I don't think I could better. And if I'm really honest, I'm not sure anybody else could. I've been writing as a journalist for 25 years. I'm quite good at that. So so the ambitions within journalism... Well, that sounds like competitiveness as well. That, yeah, that... there is competitive. I mean, it, it, journalism is extremely competitive. And if you were to ask me, you know, all those things that anybody would really want as a journalist, front page stories had those. Stories that moved the news agenda had those. Um, once you know the award nominations and all that stuff, yeah. Um, so it's it, in many ways the ambition writing wise is just to be allowed to keep writing. It's it's quite that I think is an achievement to be able to earn a living out of the inside of your head and keep earning a living, and people not to get too bored, and to not keep repeating your jokes. I mean, obviously I repeat my jokes, but in a way that people don't notice. So yeah, there, there's there's less. You know, I'm 50 this year. I'm just dancing around it because it sounds terribly arrogant to say there's less to achieve. Um, I have one area of my working life which I'm not satisfied in, as in which there's an awful lot, and there always would be, which is fiction. I've published... Um, I'm suddenly hesitating. How many novels have I published? I think four. Four. Four, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> four novels. Um, a couple of others have been started, not finished. One completed, not published. And... I know that fiction is certainly a place of unfulfilled ambitions. Uh, I think it was um, Iris Murdoch who once said, inside every novel is the wreck of a good idea. And I know exactly what she means. I've never written a successful novel. And I, of course I know I never will, but I'd like to get a bit closer. But then there's this, the piano and this object to bring it back to you know what you're talking about there was a friend of mine joe thompson who's a terrific pianist and he he put it brilliantly he said and once you're a house with a grand piano in it you're always a house with a grand piano in it so it's it is a case that i i walk past and i look in it i will run my fingers across it even though we are talking a polyester black finish i mean it's not you know it's not what it was but just this one of the things I love about them is their functionality as well. I was, it, it didn't happen in the end, but I was booked to do some festival. In fact, I was meant to be, you know, coordinating or curating, whatever you say. And not curating, but anyway. And I'd specified a baby grand piano. And the organiser rather sniffly said, oh yes, I saw your Blue Smarty list. The Blue Smarty list being, you know, the reference to the riders, the pop stars, I must have Blue Smarties. And your reference to a grand piano. I said, that's functional. 
it's because I can't see eye to eye with my bass player if you put me in front of an upright, because an upright is a bookcase. And the brilliant thing about grand pianos is you can have your bass player over there and you can have your singer there and you can all, because jazz is very much eye line. And so it's a, it's a team game. Yeah, it's well. absolutely a team game. It's completely a team game. And um, although the, you come up with a repertoire of tunes and, and you come up with arrangements, and we definitely have arrangements, uh, each night has its variants and each night is built. And there's a particular thing in there's a song called One For My Baby uh, where you get to a point um, and this is a, a moment of tension and then the bassist and I have to go off at the same time and he wants to know when that is and the way I'd to that is with my shoulders and it's so we're back but he has to be able to see my shoulders to know which way I'm going and there's a lot of that. And it's a lot about the physical. Jay, thank you so much for sharing your things with us. Um, fascinating. Will you play us out? listening to the things that make us to see pictures of the things selected by the guest in this and all episodes please visit thethingsthatmakeus.com you can get in touch with the show via twitter at things make us and if you like what you hear please subscribe so not to miss the next installment